You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, Looks like we're flying again. I hauled my ass onto an airplane last week, my vaxxed ass, my masked face, and flew to Los Angeles. And I wasn't alone at the airport. It was packed. Seeing as we're flying again, maybe a good time to remind everyone of Dan's three rules of flying. Rule number one, shut your mouth. Rule number two, shut your window shade. Rule number three, seriously, shut your fucking mouth. Before takeoff, we should all double check that our seatbelts are securely fastened and our mouths are closed. Those are my rules before the pandemic. There are a few I need to add now. People should have to be vaccinated to fly. If I ran the FDA or the FAA, that would definitely be a rule. Also, don't attack the crew or other passengers or try to open the door to the plane mid-flight. If you really want to be duct taped to a chair, that can be arranged. You don't have to assault a flight attendant to make that happen for yourself. There are people out there who would love to duct tape you to a chair, and they are not hard to find thanks to the internet. So no need to risk arrest or a massive fine or go viral if that's what you want. Now, before someone accuses me of being a misanthrope or an asshole, of course you can leave the window shade open. If you are a child who has never flown before, and I am not against talking to strangers now and then, I'm perfectly happy to talk with strangers. People approach me on the street and I'm always polite. I've given impromptu sex advice in bars. I've accepted invitations to dinner from strangers, but on airplanes, I don't want to talk to the person sitting next to me. Even when it's my husband sitting next to me, I don't want to talk to him either. Now, Chatty people, on rare occasions, two of you will be seated next to each other on an airplane, and that is a nightmare for everyone around you. But chatty people, it's rare. It's really rare that two of you get seated next to each other on a flight. Seatmates aren't soulmates. If you initiated a conversation with someone on an airplane and they're still talking to you an hour later, odds are good. Odds are way over 90% that they don't want to be talking to you at all. They're just being polite. And praying for death. Yours. You know who else I don't want to hear from on airplanes besides my fellow passengers? Pilots, for the most part, during the flight, don't want to hear what we can see on the ground under the plane because then people think it's okay to open the window shades and that's not okay unless you're a child and this is your first flight. Please see rule number two. And hearing from the pilot about the shit on the ground seriously interferes with my ability to pretend that the plane I'm in is on the ground and that I'm being driven to Vienna in a very large bus, which is crazy, I know, since we are safer in the air on an airplane than we are on the ground in a Greyhound bus. Look, I said these were my rules. I didn't say that they were fair. (laughs) I didn't say that I wasn't neurotic. They aren't. I am. But even if you disagree with me about making small talk in enclosed spaces with strangers who can't get away from you, And even if you're the kind of psychopath who keeps the window shade open during an international flight, and even if you're the kind of person who likes hearing about the shit on the ground from the pilot, I think we can all agree that we don't want to hear something like the clip I'm about to play you from the pilot of an airplane that we are on. Maybe you saw it. It's all over the internet this week. A plane full of people 
had to listen to the pilot on the intercom say this. I got married to a woman almost five years ago. I could not tell her about my pain and struggle with homosexuality, even though I was in love with her. Just, just over one year into our marriage, I began to give in to the pressure of being gay. I asked other gay crew members questions about their lifestyle and what and what led them to becoming gay. Pretty soon, I was talk, taking part in that lifestyle. I had sex with men and would come home from work trips and pretend that nothing happened. I met someone that I thought could help me. Ultimately, I want to share the love of Christ with you. If you feel uncomfortable, that's fine, but I will talk to you in the gay area. Thank you so much. A horrified passenger on an American Airlines flight from D.C. to Chicago recorded that. I don't know who to feel sorrier for, the woman this American Airlines pilot married or the gay crew members who had to answer his questions. If you listen to the whole tape, that guy is clearly in pain, and I don't want to make fun of him. He talks about struggling with suicidal ideation as a result of being molested as a child. A lot of men are molested as children. We don't talk about it enough. Not all of them gay. And child molesters often prey on boys that they think are gay. Boys that show signs of pre-homosexuality, as the sex researchers call it, because that little gay boy often winds up feeling complicit in his own abuse and is less likely to go and tell an adult, more likely a trusted adult, more likely to keep it secret. It's sad that this guy, as a child, and still now as an adult, believes what he was told about being gay, believes the lies he was told, that gayness is something you're seduced into or molested into, and he never got the help that he needed. He got Jesus instead. Seriously, I ache for this guy. It is sad. It is really sad. But the people on that airplane, they were really mad, as they should be. That guy should not be flying an airplane full of people. And at that moment, he wasn't flying the plane. The plane was on the ground. But the point is, he shouldn't have been flying planes at all. He also wasn't letting one get off that airplane until he finished witnessing to them. What is it about religious people and captive audiences? No one has to listen to any of the shit I say. It would never occur to me to force someone to listen to my podcast. Religious people, they tell themselves they're helping, they're saving souls, and that gives them license to bother people. I like to think I'm helping. It would never occur to me to duct tape someone to a chair or detain a plane full of people and force them to listen to my podcast, even though listening to me could save their holes. All right, before we start, I want to say, yes, I did hear about what's going on at OnlyFans. They're changing their terms of service, banning sexually explicit content. Sex workers and porn performers built that site, made investors billions, and now they're being purged. And while there will be some satisfaction in watching OnlyFans go the way of Tumblr, this is another worrying step toward driving porn performers and sex workers and adult content off the internet. More about that next week. All right, coming up on today's show on both the micro and magnum versions of the Savage Lovecast, Emily Blake, co-creator and co-host of Welcome to Kinkyville, is here to talk with me about Welcome to Kinkyville. And before we get started, go online now to pre-order Savage Love A to Z Advice on Sex and Relationships Dating and Mating, Exes and Extras, a collab project I did to mark the 30th anniversary of the Savage Lovecast collab project I worked on with my longtime illustrator, the terrific and hilarious 
hilarious, really. His illustrations are hilarious, terrific and hilarious. Joe Newton, you can pre-order that now. All right, on to the show. Hi, Dan. This is the girl fag from your last episode calling with a sex success story. So a few years ago, I bought myself a cock, a field dough. It's like an insertable strapless strap on. And I mostly got it for myself for being able to jack myself off while I masturbated and never really thought about using it with anybody. But I met somebody a few weeks ago, like last month, and we started talking about his ass and how he wanted me to fuck him. And the other week I made love to his beautiful, clean butthole and it was amazing and then he sucked my cock and he deep-throated it and I came and he came and he called me daddy and it was hot and amazing and just felt so validating and fun and now with this new information from you I feel even more validated about all of it so thank you and me and my cock are very happy you are welcome, Daddy. Probably sexier when that guy, that boy that you fucked called you Daddy than when I called you Daddy. But I'm going to call you Daddy just the same. Congrats on your success, you buttfucker. You welcome to the buttfucker club. All right. We like to start each week's show with a listener success story. If you've got a good, juicy success story to share with us, please give us a call and we might start next week's Lovecast with yours. Hi, Dan. I have a question. So I I signed up for this activity, and it's a big thing, and I signed up for it without realizing that it was an LGBTI plus specific type thing, but, you know, it's all inclusive. I am extremely straight, or at least like, you know, this had 85% straight, whatever, passing, etc. And I feel really conflicted because, like, I really want to do this activity and there's not that many people signed up and, but I don't want to encroach on the space and yeah, I'm just like, what should I do? You know? <laughs> so first you say you're extremely straight and then you say you're 85% straight, which means you're 15% something else because we don't have gatekeepers anymore. It's not that the bar is set low. It's just that all are welcome. If this is an LGBTI or LGBTQ plus space and you are an ally or you are 15% by, maybe that would be how reflexible might be a better word to put to 15% by, but I'm not telling anyone else how to identify. If you are 15% not cishet, then you qualify at least covered by the plus, if not the Q, queer and questioning. So go. If you have any reservations, if you have any hesitation, speak to the organizer of this event, whatever this activity is that you're participating in, and let them know you have concerns. You feel a little self-conscious. You don't want to crowd anybody else out who's a lot queerer than you are. Since it seems like they have a lot of space for this activity, you're not taking a space that some other LGBTQ plus person might want. I'm sure the organizers will be comfortable with your mostly, your 85%, which I think is a B plus straightness, being part of their activity. So have fun. Hey, Dan. I am a 33-year-old trans guy calling from the Pacific Northwest. And I have a question about gay bars. Specifically, I wanted to talk about something that happened recently with my partner. 
I was looking around in our area for a good, like, clear space gay bar to kind of extend our boundaries a little bit. I found a bar that was advertising that it was a gay bar. And as my partner researched, was advertising that it was like a, a gay men's leather bar. I thought it was awesome. Um, honestly, as a trans man, I like being in more masculine spaces. I think the gay men are really hot. I even talked to my partner about possibly wanting to, you know, get fucked or participate in some sexual acts with, with men. And uh, I was pretty stoked to go to the bar. She was really not, but well, I mean, she was, she was down, she was down for it. So we show up and we go to the bar and immediately it's obviously not a space for women. I felt a little bit more comfortable being a little bit more masculine presenting, but my partner did not. There, you know, there was, there was porn on the TV, which I thought was, was good. It was awesome, actually. The bartender was really nice. Uh, we got a drink. We sat out in the back. But we had to walk through what I felt was a very masculine uh, gay space. And I didn't want to take up that space, even as a trans man. I really wanted to be respectful. And the looks that we were getting were kind of pretty clear that lesbians or lesbian presenting a lesbian presenting couple was really not welcome in that space and you know i i just wanted to hear what you what you uh think about that um as a trans guy it's really gender affirming to be able to go into a gay male space and be accepted i think about possibly going back there and how it would make me feel affirmed to be in that space and flirt with guys and and possibly have some guys flirt back. But I also don't want to take up space in that area if I am not welcome or if it's going to make folks there feel um, uncomfortable. So what do you think? You were stoked to go to this gay leather bar. Your girlfriend was not. She was not stoked. Then you say she was down. I think you would have had a much better time at this gay leather bar that welcomed you both. Whoever checked your IDs at the door welcomed you in. The bartender, you say, was nice as could be and served you guys drinks and was all smiles. You were welcome in this space. But I think you might have had a better time if you hadn't shown up in this gay male leather space presenting as a straight couple, as a man and his girlfriend, a man and his wife, a man and a woman. Think of all the lesbians that we've heard complain and rightly so. Most people are like, yeah, I get it. I can see why lesbians would complain about women showing up with their boyfriends at lesbian bars. And you showed up in a gay men's leather bar with your girlfriend. It's a little like the woman who shows up at the lesbian bar with her boyfriend. Of course, women show up at lesbian bars with their boyfriends and get in and are served drinks and are welcomed. But some people kind of are annoyed by that and annoyed when it appears to be a straight couple in a queer space who feel entitled to take up space in that queer space. If going to the gay leather bar is about affirming your identity as a man and wanting to get that kind of affirmation from gay and bi men, you're likelier to get that kind of affirmation from gay and bi men if you aren't there with your girlfriend. Go alone. I think that's what your girlfriend really wanted. Your girlfriend wanted you to go on your own. And 
my hunch is that you didn't want to walk in there by yourself and you talked the girlfriend into going so you wouldn't feel self-conscious being alone. And then you wound up feeling more self-conscious because you were there presenting as a straight couple, as a man with a woman, and you got some looks. Just like the woman with the boyfriend in the lesbian bar is going to get some looks. Doesn't mean you can't go to the lesbian bar. Doesn't mean everybody is annoyed that you're there. But some people are going to give you a look. If that look is going to ruin your night or those looks are going to ruin your night and you can't shrug them off and focus on the people who aren't giving you those looks, then don't go with the girlfriend next time. Go on your own. And you will get the affirmation that you are entitled to and that you seek without anybody clocking you as a straight couple taking up space in a gay men's leather bar, which is probably what was going on. Hi, Dan. I'm a cis uh, gay male. I've uh, followed your career since uh, the stranger days, but I didn't discover the podcast until the pandemic. And even though you start out the show with uh, a micro version and then a magnum version, uh, I haven't heard you talk about size much. Magnum makes an XL, and that's where I fit in, excuse the pun, to uh, a rubber. And uh, it is definitely a life-changing experience. And I am trying to pose a question when I'd really like a conversation. But uh, what are your thoughts on size, Dan? And I happen to be uh, pretty obsessed with other XXL men. I like big dicks and I cannot lie. I'm not sure where to take this. My position on big dicks, sometimes ass up. I'm pro big dicks. I'm pro medium dicks. I'm pro small dicks. I've had all sorts of dicks in my time taking dicks and I have enjoyed all sorts of dick all sorts of sizes of dick. Big dicks are nice. Sometimes big dicks are impractical. Sometimes the dick is too big. I've been with guys whose dicks were pretty much useless where penetration was concerned. Pretty good for knocking out drywall during a home renovation, but not so good for getting your ass fucked. And the size of their dicks, these couple of guys that I remember whose dicks were just enormous, was kind of a curse. And these guys with the biggest dicks that other guys wish they had, the biggest dicks they'd ever seen, wished they had smaller dicks because of the limitations of having the giant dick, the XXL dick, placed on their sex lives. So, yeah, a lot of people out there think nothing better than having the biggest dick that anybody's ever seen. But, yeah, not my experience and not the experience of the couple of guys I knew, I know, who had giant XXXXXL dicks. But, yeah. Big dicks are nice. Little dicks are nice. Medium dicks are nice. I am pro dick in all the shapes and sizes. Dick comes in. The discourse, if I may apply that word to this conversation, the discourse around dick, which is always praising big and suggesting that bigger is always better, can make people with medium or small dicks feel very self-conscious about their dicks and their ability to give their partners pleasure with their dicks. And the truth is that people have preferences for medium or also smaller. And somebody with a small dick can provide all the pleasure that somebody with a big dick can because it's about grind. And yes, a big dick can give you that filled up feeling that a medium or a smaller dick can't, but that filled up feeling is definitely something a person with a smaller dick can give to someone else provided 
they're willing to call in the cavalry. How big is your dick? Okay, you can't make somebody feel as filled up as they have felt by others. How big's your arm? I bet you can accomplish it with your arm. How big are your toys? You know, guys with smaller dicks, because they're not just relying on the size of their dicks to do all the work, to impress the other person, to fill that other person up, guys with smaller dicks, in my experience, medium and smaller dicks, have been better in the sack because they didn't just haul out their giant dick and think that they contributed everything that they needed to contribute to the sex session because they arrived with the giant dick. They tried harder. And in my experience, they got harder. One of the curses of the giant XXL dick is they don't always get fully erect. There's not enough blood in the body to pump into the dick and for the dick to retain to get a rock hard erection. So there are trade-offs there. If you like that rock hard steel dick feeling, likelier to get that from someone who's medium or small than you are from someone who is XXL. But if you like that choked out feeling, if you like a dick down your throat and you can't get a breath around it, you really need an XXL dick for that. So yeah, I see the pros and cons. Big dicks, medium dicks, small dicks. I like dicks, not just big dicks. And I cannot and do not lie. All right, there. I went off about dicks for a little while. I hope you're happy. And uh, I hope you continue to enjoy your XXL dick and all the XXL dicks you find out there in the world. Hi, Dan. I'm just wondering what to do or what what you think about this situation. So, like, my parents, they gave me $10,000. They gave my siblings each and their spouses $10,000 each. So, like, my sibling got 10000 and her husband got 10000 And I'm not married. I don't have any kids. I have a girlfriend. We've been dating seven years. We don't live together. Why are my parents doing this? Like, it feels discriminatory, but is it? I know it's their money. I know they can do what they want, but this feels really hard. This isn't difficult to tease out. You're not married to your girlfriend. You don't live together. Clearly, your parents are making a distinction between your siblings' spouses that they live with and your girlfriend that you describe yourself as dating. All right, Go to your parents, tell them that this frustrates you, tell them that this seems unfair, that you've been with your girlfriend for seven years, you've been dating her for seven years, your parents are sharing a little bit of their wealth, the family wealth, spreading it around a little bit, and you're hurt that they don't see your girlfriend as the equivalent of your siblings' spouses. The answer, Occam's razor, the answer you're likely to get is the most obvious answer, that you don't see your own girlfriend in the same way that your siblings see their spouses, that you haven't married your girlfriend. This may lead to an awkward conversation with your parents about your feelings about marriage, your feelings about commitment, your girlfriend's feelings about commitment. You're likely to hear something like, when you guys are married, we will come through with this money because your parents want to incentivize marriage, reward their children who are married for being married, for making that kind of commitment. And yeah, that can seem unfair to the child who doesn't wish to marry, want to marry, or want to live with their long-term committed romantic partner. 
my brother, my oldest brother, Billy, and his girlfriend maintain separate households and they are not married and never intend to get married. My family treats Billy and his girlfriend like the couple that they are. But some families would regard their reluctance to or refusal to or disinterest in getting married as a negation of the family's feelings about marriage or or how important marriage is in that family. My family doesn't look at it that way. And so my brother's girlfriend is the equivalent, the moral equivalent, treated the same way that my husband is treated or my brother's wife is treated by other family members. Seems obvious that your parents feel differently. And they have made that quite clear. They have fired a shot over your bow. Go and talk to them about it. Have a conversation with them about it. Make how you feel clear about it and that you are upset and this angers and hurts you and it feels perhaps to you as if they're trying to manipulate you into marrying and you don't perhaps maybe you don't say but maybe don't wish to marry if you haven't had that conversation with your parents they might not know that they might not know that marriage is never in the cards for you that you never intend to get married and then you're going to have to ask them and have to tell them That even if you don't get married, you expect your partner to be treated with the same courtesy, deference, respect that they treat your siblings' spouses with. And then once they know that, if they don't come through with that kind of treatment, maybe if they don't cough up the 10K, use the leverage that you have with your family, which is your presence. But right now, I don't think you know what's going on with your parents. I don't think you've had this conversation with your parents about marriage, about the seriousness of this relationship. Your siblings have communicated something to your parents about the seriousness of their relationships by marrying. So maybe your parents were waiting for that marker, for that indication of the seriousness of your commitment to your girlfriend. If that's not the marker that they should be waiting for or looking for, it's on you to tell them that. It's on you to communicate that to them. Just as my brother Billy once upon a time communicated to us that his girlfriend, that they were committed, that this was a committed relationship and not a casual relationship. And his girlfriend deserved, because they were in a committed relationship, even though they weren't going to marry, even though they didn't live together, the same deference, respect, inclusion, ribbing. Family members of my family come in for some teasing as anybody else's spouse, and we have delivered. If that's what you'd like your family to deliver to your girlfriend, you need to let them know that. Hi, Dan. My name is Mike, single dad of two preteen girls near Chicago. One of your most recent episodes talked about how to engage your kids to talk about sex and sexuality. Recently, my 10-year-old daughter came to my ex-wife and I and said she was bisexual. Of course, we sat her down and told her that we love her no matter what, and we fully support her and how she feels about her sexual identity. But holy shit, my 10-year-old daughter just told me she was bisexual. We didn't really know what to do with that. We can't tell if this is just a coming-of-age thing kids go through these days or if it's influenced by some older kids at camp, uh, one of which also says he's bisexual. He's about 13. But after that day, she never brought it up again, so we didn't either. Then last week, she sat us down again and told us that she's actually a lesbian. She finds men disgusting, and she also wanted us to help her come out to our extended family. We told her that for now, we think it's best we keep these conversations between us until we can figure out the way to approach it which was code for us saying we have no clue what to do or how to move forward. Lesbian women aren't lesbian women because they think men are disgusting and there's no other option, except for the intersex, of course. 
they're lesbians because they are attracted to women. It is quite common for 10, 12-year-old girls in the throes of puberty or pre-puberty to think boys are disgusting. It's quite common for 10-year-old boys to think girls are icky. And then, yeah, what usually happens is a 10-year-old boy who thinks girls are icky grows up to be straight. It's the 10-year-old boys who think girls are amazing who tend to grow up to be gay. So I don't know if your daughter's going to be a lesbian if she grows up, but if this is the only reason she's giving you boys are icky, she may be misinterpreting how she's feeling right now about members of the opposite sex. She told you she was bisexual two years ago. That could be aspirational. At 10, she may have just hoped to be bisexual. When she grows up, she may actually be a lesbian, I think. All you need to do as a parent right now is listen and let her continue to think this shit through and explore and allow her to continue to, to think this stuff through, these identity issues through about her sexuality in a context where she knows that her parents are supportive. Told you she was bisexual. You let that sit there. You didn't argue with her. You allowed her to drive the conversation and now she's circled back and has told you that she's a lesbian for reasons that, at least from where I'm sitting, I, I think aren't proof of lesbianism. Although I think a young person could misinterpret those sorts of feelings as an indication that they are gay, discussed in the opposite sex. But all of us who are grown may misinterpret those feelings as evidence that they're going to be gay when they grow up or lesbian when they grow up, but not necessarily the case. But what we do know is that your daughter – has supportive parents and that your daughter is going to continue to grow up and these things are going to be clearer to her over time. And she came out to you as bi. You didn't argue with her. You accepted that. She's come out to you as a lesbian. You didn't argue with her. You accepted that. She knows from her own personal experience that she can come to you and share what she's thinking about who she is and that you're going to be receptive and supportive. And that's the most important thing. So yeah, bisexual wasn't her final answer at 10. Lesbian, likely not her final answer. Likely not the final answer that she's going to arrive at about her sexual orientation or gender identity at 12. And now I want to say when she gets to the final answer, but is there ever a final answer? Gender and sexuality are fluid. She may identify as bi again at 16 and then a lesbian at 20 and straight at 25 and a lesbian again at 35. And it'll all be good with her dad. That's what she knows from these interactions with you. That's the thing we want to be solid about. Gender, sexuality, the rest of it, that can be fluid. But the support, the loving support of your parents and your family, that's bedrock that we want to be able to drill down into and rely on. And you've shown her that she's got that. And so you're nailing this, Dad. You're nailing it. Hi, I'm calling from Europe. I'm a 30-year-old a bisexual woman. The reason I'm calling is because my partner and I are currently house hunting and there's a house that's come up on my parents' street, which we're very interested in. But I guess I'm looking for advice on whether you think it's a terrible idea to live on the same street as your parents. For context, we've been looking for over a year for a house. Um, we have quite like a long list of requirements. Um, and we've been having difficulty finding something, particularly we keep getting outbid because the housing market is incredibly hot where we're living. It's not next door. It's 10 doors down. It's a very nice street. It's probably one of the nicest in the area. Uh, and particularly to find something as nice 
nearby, the price bracket goes up quite a lot, uh, which is what we faced before. So my parents are very reasonable. They're very, very nice to be around and fun. Uh, they wouldn't be interfering, really. They'd, they'd try and respect boundaries. And uh, I suppose we have the same values as them. So we wouldn't be worrying about them being nosy or uh, watching over us or disapproving or anything like that. I guess I'm just a little bit worried about things like, oh, will we ever be able to have a party and not invite them and things like that. And we are planning on having kids. So obviously being so close would be very uh, handy in that regard. If you had any opinions or views on the idea, I'd be very interested to hear them. Having your parents nearby, 10 doors down, when you have kids, that perk, wow, that trumps any reservations or hesitations you might have about wanting to have a party without inviting your parents over. Seems to me that if you have the kind of relationship with your parents where you could really seriously contemplate living 10 doors down from them on the same block, you should have the kind of relationship with your parents where you can say to them, hey, we're going to buy this house down the street and they'll be excited about that and probably thrilled to have you nearby. And you'll talk about logistically what that means. Uh, how convenient it'll be once you have kids that the grandkids can run up and down the street to see their grandparents and that when they want to have sleepovers at grandma and grandpa's because you guys want to go to dinner or be young people out in the world for a little bit, you'll be able to do that too and that'll be wonderful, dot, dot, dot. We'd also occasionally want to have parties where you weren't necessarily invited and I think most parents would get that. You know, you're a generation younger, you have your own friends and peers and sometimes you want to hang out with those people and have a party with those people and socialize with your peers without it being an intergenerational affair. If your parents are the kind of people that you would rely on for childcare, they seem like they should be the kind of people who could hear that and not be surprised or shocked to hear that. And if they are shocked or surprised to find out they're going to be excluded from some dinner parties at your place for your friends that are your own age, the sooner you say it to them, the sooner they're going to get the fuck over it. And then you can have those parties without having to worry about your parents finding out because they're walking down the street. So go, go. Talk to mom and dad about this. I'm sure they will be thrilled to have you on the block and they will either not give a shit that they can't come over whenever you have a party or they'll quickly get over it. All right. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to do something we never do and we are not going to make a habit of. So please don't bombard us with requests. We're going to speak to someone about their fundraiser, about the fundraiser that they're currently hosting on Kickstarter to get a project off the ground. Emily Blake is the creator, writer, and co-host of Welcome to Kinkyville. Emily, what is Welcome to Kinkyville and why am I helping you out? It is going to be an animated TV series about kink education. Uh, right now we're trying to fund the pilot episode so that then we can take it to networks to pitch it, to put it hopefully on one of the major streaming services. Now, uh, I was tempted to have you on. I invited you on because uh, I saw the, the the trailer and it is really amazing. You know, I, I got an, a message from someone on Twitter saying I should probably take a look at this. And I kind of went reluctantly. I've seen a lot of trailers for a lot of projects. People want to get off the ground. This is great. And there's so Thank much you. bad shit on television about kink that I wanted to give a boost up to something that looks like it might be actually informative about kink and realistic about <laughs> kink and hopeful about kink. So, so tell us about the genesis of the project. It started out as a screenplay I was writing, and I was having trouble. 
And I came up with this idea to put in a screenplay about two of the characters doing a show like on YouTube about kink. And the more I worked on the fake show, the more I wanted it to be a real show. So then it just grew and grew and grew. And until a lot of friends were like, no, this should be a thing. And so now we're trying to get, it's basically an animated show because animation is more friendly and less scary to new, new people who might want to get into kink. And uh, it's, it's me and my co-host, Jave, and we're just basically helping new kinksters figure out how to navigate the world safely and without abuse. So tell me about your co-host, Jave DeBay. She's really great. She uh, has a show called In Bed with a Millennial on YouTube, and she's actually currently getting her PhD in sex education. And uh, so she's really fantastic. She's just got a dynamic personality, and she balances me out. She's, uh, I'm a writer who's experienced in kink, but I don't know all the academic stuff. And so that's what she does. She brings the academic stuff to the party and with a lot of personality. So usually when you want to get a TV show off the ground, you, you write a pitch, you go into a meeting, you pitch executives and they say yes or no. Why create a pilot to take into those meetings? Nobody knows who I am. So and nobody knows who any of us are. So the idea is like we needed a proof of concept. But also if we can generate enough interest on Kickstarter, if we can have enough people even if they only give like $10, if we can have a whole bunch of numbers of people, and then when we post it on YouTube, if we can have a whole bunch of people watch it, then we can take it to the network and say, look, there is interest. Look at all these people who want to see this happen. There's an audience for it. Mm-hmm. An audience exactly. that may have been frustrated by Bound on Netflix. <laughs> yeah. So are there enough kinks out there for a show to go on and on and on? What do you imagine covering? I think I have like 40 things on my list right now. And that's only a fraction of what's out there. Every time I talk to somebody else, they're like, I'm into this thing. And I'm like, okay, adding that to the list. I think we want to start out by talking about safety, by talking about abuse and red flags. And those things are really important to me. But we'll get into specific stuff. I mean, I really want to talk about feet and furries and uh, all kinds of stuff that I keep hearing about and going, oh, well, how do you get into that? What's that about? Why? Why is that cool to you? There's a long list. If we destigmatize or demystify kink, can we undermine kink in the process? Isn't part of what's alluring about kink is its forbiddenness, its transgressiveness? How do you balance wanting to sustain what makes kink hot, which sometimes is like, this is so wrong, with wanting to make people who are kinky not feel like they're so wrong? I think wanting to do things that are wrong is its own specific kink. I think for most people, kink is just an urge for something that they want to do. And I don't think making it acceptable is is going to hurt it. Like for one thing, when I do talk to people out in the wild or at work, because I work in the film industry, it's liberal, nobody cares. Uh, when I talk to people at work about this and they find out what I'm working on, Sometimes I'll, I'll hear people just open up and start to tell me about all the things they're into. And then they always say like, this is so great. Oh, thank you. I can't talk to anybody about this stuff. There's so much shame that I think it's, it's a far bigger problem that people are ashamed of what they like to do than that we worry about people who might be turned off by the fact that it's not forbidden anymore. And being able to talk about it, which, you know, I've been doing on this dumb podcast forever, being able to talk about kinks. uh, Obviously, people still have kinks. I haven't eradicated kink by talking about it. We should be able to talk about it. And it it doesn't threaten what makes it hot. That you can have friends, you can confide in experts from experts. You can go to and, and, and get the advice that you need or the info that you need. And one of the things I would love about actually getting to see your show uh, make it onto television is sometimes you can't quite pin down or articulate 
what your kink might be until you mm-hmm. see something and you're like that hits me in my erotic imagination that taps into some part of my reptile brain and that's not recruiting people to kink that's helping people to find out what works for them what what might really give them tremendous pleasure and, and an entree into uh, a community that they didn't even know existed for sure i mean that's definitely true in my case there's a lot of things where i'm like oh i would never do that and then i think about it i'm like i don't i don't, I don't know let's try it and then i'm like okay that's a new thing i'm into now so just the in the watching the Kickstarter video, uh, you and Javet have a really great rapport and, and great energy. The animation is beautiful. Who's doing the animation? That's uh, Lucy Studio. They're out of Columbia. They're mostly women, um, which was kind of important to me. Uh, and they're just they've just been fantastic. They got it from minute one. They understood what we were trying to do. They've been great. You launched the Kickstarter a couple of weeks ago. How much have you raised? How much more do you have to raise? Right now, at this minute, we are creeping up on 25,000. Uh, and every, every step of the way, we keep releasing silly videos. Our director keeps letting me do things like hit him with a cane and tie him up and <laughs> pour wax on him. Uh, so we're, we're $25,000. I get to release a Shibari video of him being tied up. They can find us on welcometokinkyville.com. Uh, and on all our socials, we're on FetLife, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at KinkyvilleTV. So to, to make it, you've raised 25K so far. To make it happen, to get the pilot made, how much more do you need to raise? 54000 Animation is very expensive. So, folks, if you want to see some good, funny, amusing, helpful, instructive, informed kink content, make it onto television. Go check out Welcome to Kinkyville on social platforms and go look them up on Kickstarter. And if you want to see that, if you want to be part of it, and if you want to see the director get tied up in Shibari, uh, you're going to want to go uh, kick in a little bit of money now. Emily Blake, creator, writer, and co-host of Welcome to Kinkyville. Thank you so much and, and good luck. Thank you so much. And again, this isn't something we're going to do for everybody's Kickstarter. I apologize. We are making an exception because this is in the Savage Lovecast sweet spot. Again, thanks, Emily. That was a, a great conversation. And it looks like it'll be an amazing project. And I wish you guys the best. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Hi, Dan. I discovered several months ago that my boyfriend is taking Viagra. I've decided not to say anything about it because I know it's a sensitive issue and I don't want him to feel shame or add on to any anxiety he may already have around performance. At the same time, I know it feels weird to not share. And I know that although it's not about me or my attractiveness, occasionally I wonder if I'm doing something wrong. He did say seven to eight months ago when he was noticeably having trouble getting hard that it was an emotional stress thing because he was going through a big breakdown. However, I have since seen the bottle again just this morning and know he's still actively taking it. He's 40, so I know this is also somewhat normal and I have no complaints about our sex life. Uh, We have amazing sex and it happens pretty much daily. But I also feel concerned about any health side effects and if there's an underlying cause that can be addressed without the pill, I want to help support that. So my question is, is there any benefit to bringing it up how should I bring it up or should I just let him take Viagra in peace? This is a tough one because there's no shame in a dude needing to take Viagra. Some women who find out that their male partners and some men who find out their male partners are taking Viagra sometimes feel insecure about that because they wrongly assume that this is proof that their partner isn't really attracted to them or that they don't arouse their partner. That is not how Viagra works. 
You don't take Viagra to make yourself horny. You are horny and you take Viagra so that you can have the erection, the full, hard, sustainable erection that you want to have to facilitate your horniness. So people aren't inducing desire with Viagra. It's not a horniness drug. It's a drug for people who are horny and need help getting hard. And sometimes that help is psychological. Sometimes people just need the confidence boost that having downed a Viagra gives them, particularly men who occasionally have trouble getting erect, will get so in their heads that they induce a kind of performance anxiety. And taking Viagra, it's almost as if you could just substitute a placebo. Having taken the Viagra allows them to feel confident in their own dicks, to tinkerbell their own dicks, to you know, applaud for their own dicks, and they'll be there. So there should be no shame in it, in the guy taking Viagra. And people whose partners are taking Viagra and you find out and they've been hiding it from you, you shouldn't have meltdowns and feel insecure about it. But he's hiding it from you. And so that may be an indication that he's self-conscious about having to take Viagra. So the most loving thing that you could do perhaps is to move around, to step around his his insecurities or his self-consciousness about quote-unquote needing to take Viagra. And it's entirely possible that age 40, if he's suffered with erectile dysfunction for a while, that he's had a previous girlfriend who found out he was taking Viagra and reacted very badly. And that may be why he hides it from you for fear of you having that kind of reaction. He may be hiding his Viagra use from you to be considerate about insecurities that he may think that you are likely to have because other girlfriends in the past have had those kinds of insecurities and doesn't want to make you feel insecure about his feelings for you. So yeah, I guess I'm all over the place here. You should be able to address it, but you might not want to address it. Just let him continue to do what works. I promise you, if you're having sex every day, he's not faking it. He's not faking uh, wanting to fuck you. He's taking Viagra so that he can when he's horny for you, which seems to be a daily thing. Fuck you. And you don't know just because the Viagra's around, just because you found it. You have no way of knowing if he's taking it every single time you have sex. Could just be a once in a while thing. And so don't inflate your concerns about the possible side effects of daily Viagra use. Don't concern troll him about his Viagra use and make suggestions about other things that he could do to improve his health that might lessen his need for Viagra or his reliance on Viagra because, again, you have no way of knowing how great his need is or how often he relies on Viagra. I think you should butt the fuck out. I think you know what you know and over time, you're dating. It's a boyfriend-girlfriend situation. It doesn't sound like you live together yet. As you become more intimate, at a certain point, he's probably going to open up to you about it or he's going to leave it out at a place and in a time where you're likely to see it and he knows you're likely to see it and that'll be a way of him broaching the subject and you can address it then. But right now, although there's no shame in it, he might experience shame if you bring it up at this stage. So don't bring it up. Enjoy the dick. Hi, Dan. Late 30s, bisexual, cis woman calling from the Northwest. I have a couple of questions for you, maybe. The first is about my boyfriend. We've been together for about three years, and we have sex sometimes, and he seems to enjoy it. But the more we've talked about it, I think he might be asexual. 
he doesn't know. I've talked about this with him and, and he's not sure. He, he's also in his late thirties. And even as a teenager, he says he was really never like super into doing it. And so we, we have sex every once in a while and it's good. He never initiates. I, I have always had a higher sex drive and so I just kind of become okay with that. So my first question is, how does he know if he's asexual? Like, he's okay with having sex. He doesn't dislike it. But he he says he never thinks about it and he never initiates it. And he probably comes about half the time. So how, I don't know. How do you determine that? Um, my second question is, he's he's okay with an open relationship, which for us means me being able to have sex with other people, which has meant hooking up with random dudes at bars while he's with me and then like we come back to my apartment and I hook up with the guy while boyfriend hangs out on the porch and then we might all you know smoke a bowl and hang out afterwards whatever which is fine but I'm drunk in these situations and I don't come when I'm drunk ever and I what I want is a regular sexual partner, I don't necessarily want a relationship with another person, but just someone who who wants to have sex with me and who's excited about it. And I guess what I'm looking for is someone to, like, take charge, to take control of it, because I feel like when I'm with my boyfriend, I'm the one that's leading the way and deciding what happens. And I kind of want, you know, a little bit of throwdown or something. So those are my questions. You can't determine whether your boyfriend is asexual. Asexuality exists. It's a sexual orientation. Your boyfriend gets to decide whether that is his sexual orientation, not just how he identifies, but who he is. There's a lot of information about asexuality at the Asexuality Visibility and Education Network. Could just be that your boyfriend has a very low libido or responsive desire and needs you to be the initiator. Could be that he is asexual or graysexual, where he has some interest in sexual activity. Or he may, like a lot of asexuals out there, have a sexual partner and enjoy not the sex, but enjoy making you feel good, enjoy meeting your needs when you communicate them to him, which is part of the problem for you. You want to be with a guy who isn't just meeting your needs when he has sex with you, but is meeting his own needs. You want to feel desired. You want to get thrown down. Okay, find some fuck buddies. You obviously can go out and pick up a guy. If the problem when you go out and pick up a guy is that you can't come when you're drunk, don't get drunk. Or if you do get drunk and you go home with the guy and your boyfriend and your boyfriend waits on the porch while you fuck that guy in your apartment or in your house and then you all smoke a bowl together, which just sounds so adult and mature and slightly cuckoldy, if you liked one of those guys that you picked up and brought home from a bar and you didn't come because you'd been drinking that night, get his fucking phone number and see if you can't upgrade one of those guys that you clicked with, one of those guys who wanted you who wanted you badly enough, I guess, to pick you up in front of your boyfriend and then agree to go home and fuck you while your boyfriend cooled his heels on the porch, I think one of those guys might be up for fucking you again under different circumstances. At his own place, without your boyfriend, scrolling through Twitter on the porch, waiting for it to be over. So, yeah, the solutions here are obvious. If you don't come when you're drunk, don't drink. 
Your boyfriend may be asexual. Kind of up to your boyfriend to determine that for himself. And fuck buddies? Well, you can find one of those. There are hookup apps. You can advertise for one of those. But I think your best bet, you can circle back to some of the guys you've already fucked while your boyfriend waited on the porch. Or you can swap phone numbers with any of the guys that you fuck in the future while your boyfriend waits on the porch. One or two or more of them may be interested in having a regular FWB arrangement with you, but you won't know until you ask. Hi, Dan. I am a woman in her mid-30s, and my question is in regards to expectations following the birth of a child. So the thing is, I am eight months postpartum. I have an eight-month-old daughter with my husband, whom I've been married to for five years. And I recently made a pass with my husband to, you know, engage in sex. And he rejected me by saying, you know, I, I don't find you. He doesn't find me physically attractive because I'm still holding on to 10 pounds of the baby weight from the pregnancy. And once I lose those last 10 pounds, then he'll be, you know, sexually attracted to me. This has been a continuous theme of the ways in which he's rejecting me sexually. So it started a year ago. I'm, you know, in kind of in the middle of the pregnancy at this point. The baby bump is starting to show. And it really began with me making a pass for sex and him rejecting it, saying, I don't find your pregnant body attractive. I can't see myself wanting to have sex with you till after you're pregnant, after you're done being pregnant. Okay, great. That was awful to hear. And, uh, you know, all, all the feelings went with that one. And, and we didn't have sex throughout the rest of the pregnancy. And then I gave birth to the child and, you know, we're both elated and overjoyed. And I think that we're both really good parents together. But as a couple, it's just crumbling. It's falling apart. So here I am now exclusively breastfeeding in the, you know, in the early stages, even now, still exclusively breastfeeding. And then that was the excuse. Oh, you're, you're, you're breastfeeding. I don't find, you know, your body physically attractive. I don't find, I don't find you sexually attractive right now because you're breastfeeding. And that was, so then here we are, like I said, eight months later, and it's still, I don't find you physically attractive. So I, I really just want to hear your general feedback of, is this bull, like, do you call bullshit on this? Cause I really, I don't, I don't know what to make of this. In one regard, it's so hard for me to grapple with. Is my husband that superficial? Like five years into a marriage? Like, I, I just don't buy it. And when we continue to have these conversations, it doesn't seem to go anywhere productive. He compares it to, you know, his, his kind of, his most recent argument is just as, you know, I have an opinion about the ways in which he shaves and trims his facial, you know, his beard. He has an opinion about how I physically look. It's no different. And so we're just, uh, it's just a shit show. This isn't a question about expectations following the birth of a child. This is a question about realizing that the man you married and scrambled your DNA together with is an intolerable asshole. And now what do you do? I, I could I call bullshit on this. You asked me if I would call bullshit on this and I'm going to call bullshit on this. I call bullshit on your husband. Okay. You can tell him. I said so. You can tell him. I said this is bullshit. It's not going to change him. It's not going to – he's not going to go, oh, okay, well, that fag with the podcast said I shouldn't be acting this way or this is assholery and so I will now fuck you. I will desire you. I will stop – shaming you about 
your body and the way it works and the way it's changed as a result of our mutual desire to have a child together and how your body works and changed in entirely predictable ways. And I will feel entitled. He's not going to stop feeling entitled to your pre baby body just because I called bullshit on it. You're going to have to gather up what remains of your self-esteem before he finishes pushing it into a wood chipper and get the fuck out of this marriage and the fuck away from this man and recognize that he's going to be in your life forever because you have a child together, but you don't want him in your bed or in your body ever. I don't think he can be trusted in your bed or with your body or with your psyche. He's an asshole. Some of these questions I get sometimes are just the only way I could possibly be helpful is to show up with the time machine. You probably wouldn't want to get in the time machine. I'm sure you love your child and getting in the time machine would mean disappearing this baby that you had with this man. But what you've learned after having – and sometimes the only way you learn – that you shouldn't have had a baby with someone is after having had that baby with them. And that's what you've learned is that you shouldn't have had this baby with them, but you're happy to have this baby. So get the fuck away from him with this baby. Yeah. I, I get why some guys, there are a lot of guys out there who are really into to, to pregnant women who are attracted. Some guys out there fetishize pregnant women. Other guys whose partners get pregnant uh, are really into their pregnant bodies and really enjoy pregnant sex. Some guys don't. Some guys are squicked out by the presence of that third person in the room and I can understand that. I could wrap my head around that. But this was clearly not about the fact that you were pregnant, not about him being spooked, about not wanting to blow a load all over his child-to-be. This is about your body changing. Your body's going to change over the course of your life whether you have children or not, whether you're breastfeeding or not, whether you've put on 10 pounds of baby weight or 10 pounds of pandemic weight or 10 and 10 pounds ain't a lot, 10 pounds of whatever weight, your body's going to change over the course of your life. He married you. He didn't have you laminated. And obviously he's not, I don't even want to say mature enough. It sounds like he's a bit of a sociopath that he expects you to be frozen in time in a way that I'm sure he's not frozen in time. He didn't have himself laminated. His body is going to change over time. And what he's telling you now, just five years in, is that he will withhold sex if he detects any changes in your body over time, including changes that he was an active participant in bringing about, facilitating, inducing, because he wanted a baby too. Maybe waste some time with a couples counselor or a sex therapist. Do your due diligence so you can feel better about ending it when you inevitably have to end it. But I would cut to the chase if I were you. I wouldn't call a couple's counselor or a sex therapist. I would call a divorce attorney. Hi, Dan. I'm a 50-something cishet female, and I have a question for you about nipple stimulation for men. My partner and I have a fucking hot and uninhibited sex life. But there's just one thing, Dan. He doesn't feel any particular sensation when I stimulate his nipples. This is in stark contrast to my experience. When he stimulates my nipples, I find it very arousing, almost like there's a direct connection to my clitoris. We aren't sure if it's different for him just because we're wired differently, or if it's more a matter of social conditioning, as you touched on in your last show. At any rate, we're both interested in learning whether it's possible to condition his nipples to become more sensitive and become an erogenous zone for him as well. I want to be able to suck on his nipples and give him a hard on. 
This is our holy grail. Please help us, Dan. Your tits are wired. Some people arrive at partnered sex with wired tits. A little nipple stimulation makes them wet. A little nipple stimulation, if they're a dude, makes them hard or enhances the hard-on that they may already have. Now, some people, like you, like me, born wired, born with wired tits. Other people acquire wired tits. And you wire your tits by playing with your tits during sex or having them played with during sex, whether or not you feel an immediate zap in your genital area, whether or not that kind of stimulation, that kind of play is sending signals directly to, not to your dick or your pussy, but to the part of your brain that gets your dick or pussy going. Yeah, you can induce that. You can develop that over time, but you got to keep at it. And sometimes what a person requires to wire their tits is more intense nipple stimulation than just sucking, clamping, Get some tit clamps, invest in some tit clamps, put them on, leave them there for a while, take them off. The tits will be much more sensitive. It may be that he just needs a shock to his tit system for it to click into gear, for the wires that are there to start buzzing, to get activated. But it takes time and sometimes it takes years. And sucking on somebody's tits or playing with somebody's tits who isn't feeling it, it's not any less erogenous than – licking their armpits or running your hand over the, you know, some other part of their body that's not necessarily an erogenous zone, but to have that kind of skin-to-skin, mouth-to-skin contact is sexy. Nobody has a nipple or a dick or a pussy on their neck. A lot of people like to have their necks kissed. Sometimes we kiss people's necks even when they don't really particularly get anything in particular or specifically or intensely arousing out of it. It's just the intimacy and connection. So you can go at his nips even if he's not feeling it, even if they're not wired the same way yours are wired. And it's only going at his nips and continuing to go at his nips and play with his tits over time that could result in a switch being flipped and his tits suddenly being wired in a way or feeling wired in a way that they didn't feel wired before. So if this is your holy grail, just keep the fuck at it and bring in some toys, get some clamps you can jumpstart the process with what kind of look like tiny little pair of jumper cables. Hi, Dan. 33-year-old cisgender, mostly straight female, West Coast. Before COVID, I was a member of a sex-positive group with monthly play parties or sex parties. Play parties were so much fun. I became involved in a serious relationship and, of course, wanted my partner to become a member of the group so that we could attend the play parties together. So on my referral he became introduced to the sex-positive community. We go to parties together and had a great time. One major focus of the play party was seeking and receiving consent. And for 20 minutes before each party, all of the party attendees would gather in an auditorium and role play saying no in various ways. Anything less than a fuck yeah, consider it a no. I considered this consent training very valuable and was happy to share the training with my partner before each party. Then COVID happened. Sex-positive group was officially dissolved and my partner and I ended up breaking up. We were living together at the time and after the breakup, we overlapped in my apartment for three days before he moved out. Those were rough three days. All three nights in the middle of the night, my then ex-partner would enter my room, climb on top of me, pry apart my legs and try to take advantage of me. He was unsuccessful each time and seemed to get the point after I raised my voice and reminded him that it was not consensual. Still, He tried to do it all three nights. He moved out on a bad note, 
needless to say, but it was a weird note because he claims he has no recollection of his behavior because he was drinking a lot, and the behavior seemed really out of character. He's a very nice guy, typically. Everyone who meets him really likes him. Over the last year, I've gone through various stages of concern, disappointment, and anger after this behavior, especially in light of the consent training we both received together at the sex parties. Add on to this, I found out fairly recently that there have been at least two other instances in his past where he has been sexually aggressive with women. Yesterday, he messaged me a friendly catch-up text and informed me that he's become a member of a new sex-positive group that grew out of the one that I introduced him to, and that he's going to a weekend-long play party next month. And this triggered me. I told him I have major concerns about his struggles with consent, and he was very open to this feedback, said he knows it's been a problem for him in the past, and ensured me that he's worked on it and that he's drinking less. Because I was his entry into this community initially, and because this repeated behavior is inexcusable, I feel a sort of duty to say something to the new group leaders about this behavior. I'm also very conflict-averse and aware that this could take a toll on my mental health. What should I do, Dan? The behavior seemed out of character, and it was during a very stressful time. But do I owe it to the community I was once a part of and plan to rejoin eventually about his offenses? You say his behavior those times he sexually assaulted you or attempted to, you described that as out of character. But was it? You talk about how you found out after the fact, after he finally moved out, that he'd done similar things to other women in the past. So it would seem to be in character, not out of character, for him to engage in these sorts of behaviors. He was drinking heavily all three nights, three nights in a row, Apparently, when he crawled into bed with you in the middle of the night and attempted to pry your legs apart and initiate sexual intercourse with you after you broke up with him and you had to shut that down by reminding him that consent is a thing that exists and he already fucking knew it. And the question then becomes, is this who he is and how he behaves and he drinks to cover up for it so that he has some plausible deniability after the fact about whether he was responsible for his actions and spoiler alert, he of course is and was and remains responsible for his actions. Or is this a way that he gets or a way that he behaves when he is blackout drunk and disinhibited and aggressive in the way that somebody fucked up on alcohol can be both disinhibited and aggressive. And if that's the case, if that's what he's come to understand about himself, giving him the benefit of a grave doubt here, That's the case. That's what he's come to understand about himself, that when he drinks, he sometimes sexually assaults people, then he shouldn't be drinking at all anymore. You say that what he's told you after you reached out to him to hold him accountable in a small way for his actions in the past, now that you know that he's getting involved in a sex-positive community that you introduced him to again, was that he's drinking less. And that – I'm bumping on that. That concerns me. Someone with his history, if indeed every incident where he violated a woman the way he attempted to, not attempted to, actually did violate you, was tied to his drinking, and he's aware of that now, that's not a drink less scenario. That's a drink not at all scenario. And he's told you he's still drinking. Seems to me, and if I were you, if I were in the situation that you're in now, 
I would reach out to the organizers of this event. You say that you're conflict averse. You have concerns about him finding out it was you. Hopefully, the organizers of this event would respect your desire for anonymity. And since you aren't the only woman he's done this sort of thing to, somebody giving them a heads up that they need to either bar him from this event, read him the riot act about this event, do an assessment at intake of him before the event, whatever, that they have to take some steps to protect the women who are going to be at this event from him. He won't necessarily be able to trace that back to you if in, you are not the only woman that he's treated this way, that he's pulled this on, that he's done this to. So I think you can call it in. I think you can alert the authorities at this event, the sex positive play party group weekend that he's going to without it being traced back to you necessarily. And I think that ups the – I don't want to say moral responsibility or obligation that you have to, to make that call, but the gold star you would get if you made that call from me personally, you know, it's not always the case that people who've been sexually assaulted can run this kind of interference on the person who sexually assaulted them in the past and feel safe and not burdened or not made even more vulnerable by doing that. But if you can, I think you could, I think you should. And again, if I were in your shoes, I think I would. Hi, Dan. I'm a lady in her 40s living on the East Coast, and I have a question for you. I currently take a yearly vacation with my brother and his family, as well as my own family. There's young children, and we try to go somewhere new each year. I'm currently sitting in my car, losing my mind because I just can't take it anymore. My brother is younger than me, and he's very different. For one, he's super into material things. He just bought a super fancy Porsche. He has all the newest toys and gadgets. His wife is definitely a bit on the trophy side, meaning she's drop-dead gorgeous. He doesn't really have any interests in life. We don't really have anything in common. I love seeing my niece and nephew, but every year it's just so emotionally exhausting being around my brother. As I said, he's a bro, he's super into material things, and I'm really down to earth. I'm a very sensitive person. I don't care about fancy things at all, but I struggle because my family's very small. My sister passed away. And so my brother's my only sibling, and I don't want to not know my niece and nephew or be completely disconnected from my family. What do I do? My brother lives pretty far away, so in order for us to see each other, it doesn't make sense to just have a visit that lasts a day. We're in a shared space. He's neither in my home, nor am I in his, but it still is so hard, and I don't know if it's worth the emotional toll. He's just, he just doesn't get me, I guess. He's very high energy. He kind of picks on me. He makes me feel like there's something wrong with me. I just don't know what to do. Doctor, doctor, it hurts when I vacation like this. Doctor, don't vacation like that. You don't have to go on these vacations. You can be in touch with your brother online. You can swap text messages with your brother. You don't have to see him in this way that upsets you so much. 
I was worried that maybe you were the problem here, that you were judging your brother for his interest in gadgets and material things and judging his trophy wife based on her looks and seeming lack of interest in anything other than, I assume, maintaining her looks. But then you got to that point where your voice started to crack and you talked about your brother picking on you. You don't have to show up. When someone's going to punch you in the face or punch you in the heart and you know it, you're not obligated to show up at an appointed time to get punched in the fucking face. You're going to want to pivot away from these annual vacations perhaps in a way that allows your brother, his wife, to you allow them to save face where you're not pushing at a conflict where you don't have to tell them we have literally nothing in common and I do not enjoy spending time with you and I do not want to be trapped in another vacation home with you or I will die. Maybe what you say to them is – Let's do something different. We're grown-up adults. It's really important for our relationships, for our marriages, that we have some time away from our kids. My mom always said that you only remember why you wanted kids together in the first place when you were away from your kids together. Instead of ending these vacations because you hate your brother and telling him so, you could say, you know, let's do something different for the next few years. While we're still young and while our kids are still young enough to enjoy these sorts of things – you send your kids to me. You guys go on a vacation. And so our, our, you know, the cousins can hang out, but you guys can go away and your brother can go enjoy his material things and the material place and buy more gadgets or do whatever the fuck it is he wants to do. Drive his Porsche really fast somewhere else. And then your kids can go visit them. I assume if your brother was toxic and made your kids miserable or made your spouse miserable, you would have included that in your call. So the issue isn't your brother as an uncle. The issue is your brother as your brother, as a brother to you. If he's a pretty decent uncle to your kids, if your kids like him, enjoy spending time with that family, great. Let them. And you and your partner or husband, you go on a go to Europe for 10 days and send the kids and then return the favor. They can send their kids to you to some vacation spot maybe and they can go the fuck away. And you and your husband, your partner, you get, get away from your kids together. Remember why you liked each other well enough to want to have kids together in the first place. And your brother and his wife get to do the same. And everybody wins. You're not obligated to keep doing this. I don't really know many people. I mean, I know some people who get together with their siblings a lot. Most people I know see their siblings every few years. If they don't live in the same place, if they don't live nearby – and I would encourage you to adopt that practice. Again, doctor, doctor, it hurts when I vacate like this. Stop vacating like that. End these vacations that leave you crying in the car. Take new vacations. Win-win vacations. Preserve a little bit of family harmony. Give you and your partner some time alone. Give your asshole brother and his shallow trophy wife some time alone too. All right, before we get to listener response calls, let's read your tweets. Faded Philosopher tweets, just heard at Fake Dan Savage vibing with per-purse singular gender-neutral pronouns from Marge Piercy's Woman on the Edge of Time. I love how naturally and elegantly they flow into my speech and writing patterns, thanks to whoever called into the Savage Lovecast with the feminist sci-fi book recommendation. I should have looked it up before I spoke about it on the show, but Marge Piercy, who is an Arthur C. Clarke award-winning and New York Times best-selling author, she wrote Woman on the Edge of Time in 1976. So per purse as singular gender-neutral pronoun options have literally been sitting there on the shelf waiting for us to discover them this whole time. 
I'm not really into science fiction myself, so I'm not going to pick up Woman on the Edge of Time and read it, but I've already ordered a copy of Piercy's 1988 novel, Gone to Soldiers, which is set during World War II. That is my jam, and I'm going to be reading it this weekend. Britt Marie Hermes tweets, Thank you at Mike Hall 314 for the super understandable and clear breakdown on the new Apple software to help stop child abuse. I was a little bit freaked out after listening to at fake Dan Savage talk about it on the Savage Lovecast. Well, I was a little freaked out when I talked about it on the Savage Lovecast, talked about Apple's new software. I may have succumbed to catastrophizing. I do have a touch of worst case scenario disorder. So I have invited Corinne McSherry, legal director for the Electronic Frontier Foundation, to come on next week's show and walk me through what I got right about Apple's new software and what I got wrong about Apple's new software. That's coming up next week. Freaky Faye tweets in episode 773 of the Savage Lovecast. Did anyone else here at Fake Dan Savage say, when you're in a hole, stop dicking, then realize it was stop digging? I've apparently never heard that expression before. (laughs) Well, I obviously need to speak more clearly whether you've heard that expression before or not. I need to enunciate. When you are in a hole, stop digging. Don't stop dicking. Never stop dicking unless the hole you're dicking withdraws its consent, in which case stop the dicking immediately. All right. Thanks to everyone who posted about the Savage Lovecast to your social media this week. We really appreciate it. And if you want me to see and possibly read your tweet about the show on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, please be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now, listener response calls. Hi, I'm calling with a comment on the fray sexuality issue. About five years ago, that's how I would have described myself because my sexual interest waned in every single relationship I've been in. But in 2016, I got into my first polyamorous relationship, and I was actually upfront with this person. I told him, like, hey, my sexual interest wanes over time. It just happens. But five years later, I still want to fuck him all the time every time I see him because what I actually needed was some space. My monogamous relationships were smothering me, and once I was able to break out of that, I was way more horny for the partners that I'm with. Hi, Dan. I just finished listening to episode 773 and had some advice for the poor woman with the sex pooping issue. Women have an amazing anatomical superpower in that they can just reach up into their vagina with their finger and palpate their colon and they can tell if there's poop in there ready to come out. They can even digitally uh, use their finger to kind of push that poop towards the outer world and go ahead and stimulate a bowel movement. Most of the time when you actually need to go, that poop is just sitting there sort of very close to, to the end in the, uh, in the rectum. And you can pretty well clean yourself out very, very quickly and easily that way. It seems to me like maybe a lot of women don't know this particular fact, but reach on up in there. You can feel if there's some stool waiting to come out and get rid of it. 
Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy At-Risk Youth. This is in response to the caller in episode 773, phoning in about greeting his friends as the theys. Firstly, caller, I agree with Dan's advice verbatim from his observations about the they-them pronouns to his advice about how to greet your friends. I only want to add that some people these days seem to be looking for a shorthand way of expressing everything, which makes sense when you're texting someone, but if you're actually speaking to a person, consider not shortening everything. Instead of greeting your friends as the theys, just say their names because it's kind and requires little or no extra time or effort on your part. And instead of trying to save time or put in less effort to communicate by verbally saying things like BRB, just say be right back since it's exactly the same number of syllables, thereby saving you no time or effort. So caller, I get it. You want to influence the language and I encourage it, but please don't butcher the language or dumb it down to the point where it's not even recognizable anymore. I know that our culture is pushing us to want everything instantaneously these days, but not every expression or greeting needs to be expedited. Moreover, not all of these shortcuts like the theys are as cute and clever as you think. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for me or a comment about this week's show? There are two ways to get them to us. You can call the Savage Lovecast at 206-302-2064, or you can use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. My Dirty Little Film Festival Hump is available to you. It's coming to theaters, possibly near you. Also online this fall. We're headed out on tour in person with masks on to cities throughout the U.S. and Canada with the Hump 2021 lineup from last spring. And there's a new Hump's Greatest Hits Volume 4 streaming online starting September 10th. And don't forget the deadline for making your own film for Hump 2022 is December 8th, so get humping. Get all the info you need to buy tickets or to submit your film at humpfilmfest.com. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Check out Welcome to Kinkyville at welcometokinkyville.com. And follow Emily Blake on Twitter at TheEmilyBlake. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Rescue and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading. Hold up. 